So it is Sanctity of Life Sunday, as we've emphasized a couple of times. And I thought I had a big enough debate for my intro for this between some of the abortion headlines and some of the Canadian headlines about euthanasia, which have a little more to do with the passage that we'll start with today. And then somehow Tony Dungy began trending over the weekend after he tweeted something and then rescinded that tweet saying he was in error. And then he, people decided to cancel mild-mannered Tony Dungy, NFL speaker, somebody who just talks about football, but a Christian who also this weekend was joining others in a parade from uh, in a March for Life parade, and then people began talking about him and calling for him to be fired from the network and silenced and put aside because his Christian stance, his historical Christian stance, was offensive. And then interestingly, another uh, sports personality, Chris Broussard, came to defend him and made the statement or made a statement along the lines that a historical Christian and Jewish and Muslim position surely could not be that offensive. And it was interesting to see his statements quickly responded to a, or responded to with a, yes, they are. That's exactly what we're saying. They need to be pushed aside. And I think we, within the church, as much as those outside of the church and in our culture, need to be rightly challenged by a statement from our main passage today. Were you not afraid? Or why were you not afraid? Not just in regards to abortion, although in particular in regards to abortion, but in regards to many aspects of the value and the preciousness of life that Scripture absolutely weighs in on and makes statements regarding. And much of today, I would encourage you to think through, not if, because Scripture makes these things clear, but how we should live these out. It doesn't always declare to us the how, and there are plenty of debates within that question on some of these issues. But the if is clearly stated by Scripture. God made life, and he made us image bearers. And there are times where we need to look at our culture, and even within church culture, and ask, why were we not afraid in our stance on these? 2 Samuel 1, verse 1 through 16. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third, third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And then David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. 
And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I just stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. There are so many life issues involved in this. It's in the middle of war. It costs a young man his life. But David is focused on the life of the king that was taken and how. And depending on your translation, that, that phrase or that challenge might be worded different. I don't even remember where I first saw it or which version I was trying to track it down. Many say, why were you not afraid? The, were you not afraid? I can't remember if I dropped the why or where it was. And ESV phrases it a little different, but the challenge holds. Why were you not afraid? Also, interestingly, it mentions that in mourning they fasted. I'm not really going to talk about it, but these issues are issues that would be worth fasting over in lament and a desire for our nation to come to the view of life that God wants us to have. But going through the passage, one of the things you should ask yourself is, where was David? Jonathan and Saul are fighting in the name of Israel. Where is David? And we know that it's because Saul is pursuing David at this point that he's not with them but where is he? Interestingly, he had started by marching towards Israel, and then the Philistine armies kick him out. They are worried that he's going to be torn in this battle against Israel. David has been fighting for the Philistines, and it's an interesting set of stories that come out of that. And in the end, he gets pushed aside, and then he turns on the Amalekites, a name that pops up frequently in the passage. And so there, he and his men are in a set of side skirmishes attacking the Amalekites in war. And then he, this story comes up after Saul is dead. But it's interesting that he bumps into an Amalekite. Especially interesting that it is on the heels of the death of his friend Jonathan and it's this Amalekite that brings the news, not just of Saul's death, but David's death. And this would have been a huge, impactful moment for David. Grieving the loss of his closest friend that he's already been torn away from because of the realities of David and Saul and the turmoil of sin breaking apart the nation of Israel when it ought to be honoring God. God. 
And it's in that setting that David is confronted with the death of his friend and with his king. But remember, too, that upon becoming established on the throne as king, not just declared king, and yet on the run, and after this point, David finds out that Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who's been handicapped since an injury as a child, is still alive. And David cares about Jonathan enough and the life of this special needs individual, this handicapped individual, to bring him into his care. That was his love for Jonathan, and perhaps also a glimpse of David in this regard as he considered the value of life. But he's grieving Jonathan, and then the nation turns to grieve the loss of the king. As we look at sanctity of life, we should be reminded that life is precious and death is offensive. All death is offensive. We are not meant to deal with death. It did not surprise God, but the reason we grieve and it hurts when a loved one dies, whether it is a child and a miscarriage, or perhaps it's you knowing that one of your family members has chosen to have an abortion and you are grieving the loss of that child, all the way to what Canada has been making the news for, ending life prematurely at the end of life. That death is offensive. It is a result of the fall, and it is hard because it is not supposed to be any part of our life, and yet it is. But we don't lose hope because God has answers for it and and the only answer is to why it exists in the first place and why we grieve it. But we grieve nevertheless. Someday it will be thrown into hell. And until that day, we grieve whenever we encounter death. And so the nation grieves the loss of their king. The king replacing him grieves the loss of the king. Let's deal with the Amalekite for a minute. Saul had his own history with the Amalekites. It's in 1 Samuel 15. We won't turn there, but you can look it up. It's up on the screen for a second. In verse 1 through 3 and 9 and 11, the Amalekites and Saul have a history that Saul would not be happy about this. And David knows about it. Saul, in part, is facing his demise at the hands of the Amalekites, even though it's the Philistines that he's fighting. But in addition to that history, we also have to pause. We won't spend time on it, but you can think about this throughout the day. Is he lying? And it's kind of interesting because pre-20th century, everybody seems to say no. He's telling the, telling the truth. And post-20th century, everybody seems to say, we're pretty sure he's lying. We're not sure that's an accurate representation of it. There might be some indications of that. So have fun this afternoon wrestling with that. Was the Amalekite lying? Regardless, he's the wrong person to show up before David. That's easy to see. Saul has history with them. David was just fighting them. This is maybe an opportunistic person, thinking he'll find reward from David, and instead he gets his comeuppance 
at the hands of David. But he also points this out, or or it indicates this. Saul is in anguish as he's dying. He didn't die in battle. He died because of battle. But it's kind of interesting, some things to consider with it. How bad was the wound to begin with? We see at the end of 1 Samuel that he is shot by arrows, but he isn't dying from them, or at least not quickly enough. And so because he doesn't want to get caught by the Philistines, which would not have been fun, by the way, nor would it have been quick, it would have been torturous, but he's trying to find someone to kill him, and when he cannot, he falls upon his own sword. Interestingly, the Amalekite says it's a spear. That might be an indication he's lying, because 1 Samuel says it's a sword. Don't know for sure, but that's an interesting point. But we need to think about, is he really dying? Or is this just yet another glimpse into Saul's bad faith and bad relationship with God? That he isn't trusting God to protect him, even in death, and instead is looking for his own solution and an easy way out. The Amalekite even says, although again, maybe his account is not entirely trustworthy, but he says that Saul claims that his life lingers, not just from the arrows, but even from falling on his own sword. That he's still continuing on. Here, by the way, is what I think should have happened. I don't know for sure, but as a sci-fi fan and as a Lord of the Rings fan, I think there should have been a stand for the king, even by the king. And then when he was dead, for the king's body to his soldier's own death. But it points out, perhaps, that the armies are fleeing. And had it been warrior-era David, you can picture David, arrows and all, fighting to the end. Just like would play out and has played out in movies for a long time. We know also there was an armor bearer nearby, and he should have defended his king and his king's body to the end, but he didn't. And then the Amalekite, according to his own words, gets there before the Philistine attacking armies. He could have been the nation's hero, the Amalekite that they all loved, if he had taken a similar stance to defend a dying Saul until the end or defend the king's body, even at the cost of his own life. In any of those scenarios, by the way, God might have shown his power in a similar way that he did through Samson, in a mighty and glorious warrior's death. And I'm not necessarily advocating for that, but that's how it would have been viewed. Instead, David asks that Malachite, Why were you not afraid? This is the king, and you should have been afraid to take his precious life. It was not to be taken by men, especially outside of battle. You have to remember, twice, David has an opportunity to kill Saul and end the pursuit that he is running from, and he won't because Saul's life was in God's hands, not David's. Even if it cost David his own life, 
although certainly he was trusting God to protect that. David wouldn't take his life. And the armor bearer also chose not to. In 1 Samuel 31, verse 4 and 5, he declares, I won't take your life. He, in fact, takes his own rather than taking Saul's life. And David points out, but you were not afraid to take the king's life, and so it will cost yours. There are many things in our culture and our world that I think need to pause and consider that question, that challenge. Not that we live fearfully, especially as Christians, but that we live circumspectly, like Psalm 90 verse 12 points out, that we would number our days that we would consider how we act and live and think and speak, and even at times, especially in regards to life, consider, do we need to ask whether to be afraid about pursuing this direction? Our culture certainly needs to wonder, and this includes much of Christian culture, were you not afraid you might be catastrophically wrong? Were you not afraid to ditch truth? Were you not afraid to ignore God? Were you not afraid to forget his word? Were you not afraid to dehumanize anyone bearing his image, which is everyone? Were you not afraid to live immoral and amoral and to ignore your conscience, which Romans 2 highlights, we all know better. And were you not afraid to trample life in the name of excess and ease, which all too often is our reasoning? I need an easier life than I can imagine in this moment. According to Scripture, it is clear life is precious and not just the life of the king. It is sanctity of life Sunday. Wonderfully, Roe versus Wade has been overturned, but predictably, chaos would ensue afterwards. And the Born Alive bill and the Protect Pregnancy Centers bill are astonishingly not 100% supported, and yet not astonishingly at all. Many of us expect that. Abortion is rightfully our focus each time this year, but sanctity of life is so much more than just abortion. We need to support CareNet. We need to have the right view of the unborn. But we need to go beyond that as well. And we've been challenged in that in recent years. Your notes on there, and by the way, that note sheet should terrify you. Anytime I produce notes that have that much on it to begin with, I'm going to try to respect time today. But uh, in, in our college group, they would know it's a long night if that's what I hand out to them to begin with. But your notes include a non-exhaustive, this is not everything, this is everything I could think of and fit on the page, a non-exhausted list of topics and issues regarding life, pro-life for the whole life is kind of the catchphrase right now, with passages that pertain to each one. You can disagree with me, but please don't disagree with Scripture. You can think that I was wrong to put something on that list. But please don't read that verse and think that God was wrong to include it. Think through the how, not the if. We might not agree on every nuance of a discussion, 
And that's fine, especially where Scripture is not specific as to the how. But I would encourage you to find someone. Some of you will do this in Sunday school classes in the next hour. And feel free to join them, even if you don't normally. But I would encourage you to talk about these things with your family, especially if you have teenage kids. I'm not going to go through the whole list. That's why I put it there. But I am going to highlight a few. Starting with this, it actually doesn't start with abortion. It starts with murder and thou shalt not kill. It's in the Ten Commandments. You can also look up Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. In regards to abortion, we read Psalm 139. It is, it is one of my short list favorite verses in Scripture. You all know I have a long and ever-growing answer to that as well. But Jeremiah 1.5 is another one that is frequently turned to, and it says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God values life, and God has relationships long before we do. And we need to pay attention to that, that we are wonderfully made, as Psalm 139 says. Special needs, many of you know that in our family has a particular place on our hearts, If you want a longer sermon on that, you can hunt down online the one I did a few years ago of abstract masterpieces in a broken world. I spent much more time on that. I want to go to slavery, though. This seems obvious, I hope, to every one of us. But it is interesting how my students bump into this on campus and on the internet as a challenge to faith with the statements made by many people that scripture either says nothing about slavery or is somehow pro-slavery and it couldn't be further from the truth. Exodus 21 verse 16. I love these two verses. It makes it clear to me and I don't know how a gener- generations, not even a generation, but generations of Christians butchered this. Because scripture couldn't be clearer, even if you pull other passages into it, including Philemon, where Paul doesn't flat out tell him slavery is wrong, but he maybe indicates these verses when he points back to God's word. Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's a strong statement. It just put the death penalty for the nation of Israel on any slave trader and slave owner. I'm not sure how you get clearer on an issue than declaring the death penalty on it. And then a second one, and I like this one even more. Deuteronomy 23, 15, and 16. You shall not give up to his master a slave. This has echoes of Philemon in it, or perhaps the other way around. Philemon has echoes of Deuteronomy 23 in it. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose, within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. I love what Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad did. But if you're familiar with Chicago, this takes the Underground Railroad and puts it up as an L train. 
and then looks at the, the people coming at it and says, you'll meet our entire army if you try to take the person from this train. We're not hiding it. You can't have them. Those are a beautiful set of verses. And very clear and succinct. Christians are opposed to slavery. The discussion is how do we live this out today, not whether we are opposed to it. That one's easy, though. And this is where I start losing friends, maybe. But how about immigration? Shout out to my mother-in-law, by the way, who posted this a couple weeks ago. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You, sh you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. If you're unfamiliar with Leviticus 19, let me give you some context. Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment, points to the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, and then he tacks on, love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus 19. When Jesus quotes scripture and he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he doesn't just say, know the verse I read or said. He wants them to think of the context it's stated in. And the context includes this and many other statements. But when he lo says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying the law talks about this. And it includes your immigrant neighbor. Now, wonderfully, in some senses, it doesn't specify exactly what that means. And again, you and I might disagree on how we should live that out right now. But we should never disagree on whether we should live that out right now. It's a clear statement many times in Scripture from God. First, love your neighbor. Second, your immigrant counts as your neighbor. And third, in particular, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow are called out as those that need our help. So if you have stopped thinking through how you should love an Im immigrant, you need to return to that. And if your political party is the answer for that, perhaps you need to reevaluate that relationship as well. Homelessness is, well, poverty, I should say, is mentioned. Homelessness is not mentioned in particular. But homelessness is an interesting aspect of poverty. Here's, the, here's a verse. Whoever opposes a poor man insults his maker. Insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Homelessness is a little tougher dynamic, though. There's a lot in play in it, and I don't mean to imply it's a simple answer, but don't forget the fact that in the Old Testament and Old Testament Israel, they had generational land. You could not lose rights to your land for eternity. You could temporarily give them up out of need, but they came back to you in the year of Jubilee when debts were forgiven. And I don't mean that needs to dictate American policy, but it ought to dictate, or at least better inform, the hearts of Christians that God has a heart for the poor. And we shouldn't be flippant in our answers to it. Even fair wages get mentioned. Malachi 3.5, it's also in James 5, by the way. 
Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. That one's easy. We don't have a lot of those. Against the adulterers. It's a little tougher. Against those who swear falsely. Oh, man, we're really bad at that, by the way. And you think, well, I don't use bad words. That's not what it's talking about. <laughs> it's talking about other things. Against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. The widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Even wages. God's not weighing in on what minimum wage should be, but he has weighed in on making sure wages are fair. Scripture does weigh in on prison, but there aren't necessarily verses for it. It it references prison, I should probably say. They didn't have prison in Old Testament Israel. It's interesting I'm not saying we shouldn't, but wrestle with that. What did they do instead? That's a fun discussion. There are answers to that, but it's interesting. Policing was by the people. I love our policemen, our law enforcement officers. The nation of Israel didn't have them. It was everybody. It was the neighborhood watch. That's another fun thing to wrestle through and think about. And again, I'm not saying end or even defund the police. I am a fan of properly funding them. Pacifism, that's a whole set of books of a discussion. It's not even an essay. Many of you are involved, I don't know about many, some of us are involved, some of you are involved in CASA. It's an advocacy group for young people making their way through the courts. I love this verse, Psalm 82.3. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. This is a sanctity of life thing. It's another issue. Two that have become prominent in the last few years, and you might be wondering why I always talk about these. It's because our culture is. Because our kids are struggling with it. Either individually or with their friends. It's because Christians are still struggling sometimes to land on the most biblical answer in terms of both standing upon the truth of what Scripture says, not abandoning it, while also coming with grace. For the LGBT community, too often we've used 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 and others as a clobber clobber passage, Romans 1 in, in addition to that. But we need to stop taking the mirror of Scripture and bashing it over the heads of other people as a weapon that's not meant how it's meant to be used, especially when you forget the context of verse 11 where it says that there were LGBT within the community of the church. That doesn't mean that they were unrepentant or anything else, but it means that they were there or the verses on the screen, 29 through 32. We need to remember who else is condemned and not just grab a sin that we don't struggle with. It says this, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
We need to stop targeting one thing mentioned in some of those lists unless we're also ready to condemn eternally and without hope those who disobey their parents. Bad kids, you're out of luck. Gossips and greedy, no hope for you either. These lists condemn us all. That's the point of them. And I don't mean the ones spelled out are irrelevant. The author, usually Paul, stating them is making a point that we need to pay attention to. But it is interesting that in both of those, 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 1, he then goes to grace and the gospel, which is what we should always do. Not bash someone with scripture, but take them to the king and his greatness and say, here's where grace is. Wrestle over this with your king. That should always be the response of the Christian. One last one on that list, and then I'll start wrapping things up. Aging in the end of life. As I mentioned with Canada, the headline in particular that caught my attention and has caught many people's attention was from the Paralympian who's asking for a chairlift and has gotten encouragement to just end their life. Surely the cost or the value of a life is more than a chairlift. That seems the easiest solution, and yet even if that is too difficult, it seems there would be many other solutions before perhaps we, your country, should end your life if only you'd be willing and consent. Scripture says a few things about the end of life. Leviticus 19, verse 32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Isaiah 46, 4. This is God taking care of our elderly. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. God values age. God values our older people. Our culture does not. We want to live as young as possible, as long as possible. And while I love jeans and graphic t-shirts, logo t-shirts, I don't love that our culture more and more dismisses our elderly. By the way, unlike many cultures before us, God cherishes the unborn and the end of life. This one's just for fun, another favorite of mine, but it tends to go with age. Leviticus 13.40. This is how much God cherishes life. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. He is clean. It's intentionally in there to make you laugh, but seriously, that's how much God values life. Those of us that are bald, it says he cares about our head and the hairs that are no longer there. And our culture dares to invite me to a baby shower while devaluing the life of that same baby. 
What a contrast. God values life. I want to pause for a minute, and then I'll wrap up. But I'd encourage you, spend 30 seconds right now in silence and pray. Pray as lament for how little our culture values life, and then pray for shalom. Peace for you in the midst of a culture that does not value life appropriately, but also shalom for that culture that it would. The other one would be in repentance and for grace. If in hearing these verses at any point you think, I'm failing in that regard. I'm not valuing life the way I should. I've been caught up in this or that. Perhaps it's ease, perhaps it's politics, perhaps it's just trying to make it through a day of life. We're going to take 30 seconds, pause and pray, lament or repentance, and then shalom and grace. Because grace gives value to the life. Let's pray. Let you pray on your own. Wonderfully, were you not afraid is never where Scripture leaves us. Because the ultimate sanctity of life passage are the gospel passages. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In a world since the fall that has been confronted by death upon death, the gospel offers grace upon grace, a declaration of the value of life that God wouldn't leave us in the face of death. Wonderfully, he redeems and he ransoms. Romans 8, 1, Pastor Benji was in Romans 8 last week, near the end of it, talking about similar valuing of life and that we are not condemned, we do not need to live fearfully Instead, Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It does not matter what you are guilty of, grace covers our sin. We've been asking where you're not afraid. These verses are why we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to live afraid. The gospel is the ultimate sanctity of life statement, that God values life. And so he saves. Grace to those who trust in Christ. Grace to those who sin by taking or trampling life. And grace when we have reason to fear, yet in turning to Christ, we find grace upon grace upon grace. I hope in regards to abortion and sanctity of life that it is not a debate for you. I hope it's a discussion of how to live it out and not a debate over whether Scripture is making the right stand on valuing life in every aspect from abortion until the end. 
By the way, if it is a debate for you and you genuinely want to discuss it, yes, we would love to. Graciously, we would love to. We'll hold our position, unshakably so. But we can have that discussion if you want to, and nevertheless, I hope it is not a debate. Even in this way, yes, legislate morality. All of legislation that is worth codifying is moral legislation. The speed limit does matter, but it at times is arbitrary. There is moral value that goes into it. But at the heart of the most important parts of law is morality. Whether, by the way, it is only an eye for an eye and not beyond or it is inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are moral statements, and we unashamedly legislate them as we are able to. Don't legislate somebody to have to go to church and be faithful. That we cannot legislate. But absolutely legislate moral issues, starting with abortion, but continuing beyond that. Pro-life for the whole life. We have sometimes rightly been called out as Christians for stopping at abortion and birth and not continuing on, and may it never be rightly accused of us that we do not take a biblical aspect of valuing all of life. We can disagree in details, but God has made it clear that life, human life in particular, is precious. And we should treat it as such. But then finally and ultimately, eternal life. May we value life so much that we are reconciled to Christ and that we faithfully live as ambassadors to a world that needs to hear that message of reconciliation, that they need to hear the gospel and they need to respond and be redeemed because that world all too often that is dying around us is also tragically hastening death along its way. And to that, we need to take a stand and say, I know the ultimate life verse. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's not a verse. My brain just went to the song. Sorry, I meant to go with John 3.16. Many of you are thinking, which verse is that? That was a verse? I didn't know that was a verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the ultimate sanctity of life first. Let's pray. Lord, mighty and holy, may we not forget the lessons we learned in Sunday school, that you love and that you redeem and that you value our lives. Lord, when we get pulled into politics, keep us from getting sucked into merely politics and ditching our faith along the way. But help us, Lord, constantly to live by your word, to hold up your word, not because the world will respect it, but because it is truth and it is always right. Lord, help help us to, on the abortion front, Hold the line of valuing the most defenseless. 
and where we're able to, to expand that territory to defend the defenseless. But to never stop short, Lord, of where you take sanctity of life all the way to the end and the value of our elders and those whose lives are starting to suffer or endure pain or fall short of what our culture says is a life worth living and instead value a great grandma sitting in a rocking chair enjoying the noise of great grandkids and a family that cherishes her because that's what we hear from your word. So we praise your name. Amen.